Welcome to episode three of the 10X Total Health Podcast, hosted by Dr. Gabriel Eichler and me, Mark Redless. The purpose of this podcast is to uncover and highlight breakthrough work that is being done in and around the healthcare arena in an effort to 10X the level and quality of patient care, leading to better outcomes and hopefully overall healthier people. Today, this episode goes a little longer than normal as it approaches a full hour in duration. So apologies uh, out of the gate, but we get to hear from one of my very favorite trios at Tritium. While I'm typically reticent to boast, these three people routinely amaze me in how they ideate, design, architect, and build world-class digital behavioral health products used by patients, providers, caregivers, and health system executives every single day. Some quick stats on the scale and impact of the products created by this product and engineering trinity. 780,000 daily page views of the Tritium One platform. 7,000 unique patients supported in active treatment daily. 3,000 unique clinical providers delivering care to those patients. Improvement among patients at twice the rate of those receiving traditional behavioral health interventions. And finally, when compared to the gold standard in U.S. healthcare today, a reduction of 70% of the time it takes patients to see a provider for their first appointment. And the accomplishments really can go on and on, as well as the stats. We thought that today's episode could help anyone investing in, working on, or implementing digital health products. While it is sometimes true that lightning strikes and a special team forms around a unique mission, these three continue to work at the relationship a lot. And that in turn has helped to bring some extraordinary products to market. Now, let me just uh, run through and introduce each one of them. First up, Deb Cipher. She is the Chief Product Officer at Tritium. She is a native of Maryland. Deb has over 25 years of experience across many software disciplines, starting as a developer and moving to multiple roles of increasing responsibility, including senior leadership positions in Fortune 500 companies, until finally finding her niche in product management, where she's been exclusively focused for the past 12 years. Since joining Tritium, Deb has not only led the design and successful launch of the Tritium One platform, but she's also been developing a world-class product team. Deb earned a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from Salisbury University, and she resides in Florida with her family and menagerie of cats and dogs. Next up, James Flaherty, Chief Technology Officer. James brings over 15 years of experience in delivery and software development management. Prior to joining Tritium, James led delivery and technology at Enable Consulting, responsible for overseeing the development of customer solutions for the firm's clients. Prior to Enable, James led several development teams at the Active Network, responsible for for five customer-facing products and Active's marketing presence. Previously, James led the delivery operations for Talisman Interactive, a digital agency that specialized in touchscreen kiosk development and custom application development. James is a graduate of Rutgers University and holds a bachelor's degree in English with a minor in computer science. And finally, Scott Johnson, Chief Mobility Architect. Scott possesses more than 20 years of technology management, architecture, design, and software engineering experience across web and mobile development environments. Scott has spent the last nine years as co-founder and principal of Objective Apps, a software company focused on building innovative iOS and Android-based mobile applications for both the consumer and enterprise business markets. Prior to his most recent position, Scott served more than eight years as principal at Five North, providing clients with an integrated approach to business process development, software engineering, and project management. While Scott can often be found managing technology development teams, he continues to keep his technology skills sharp, frequently rolling up his sleeves and jumping in with his team members to accelerate development. Scott received his bachelor's in information systems from the University of Redlands. Now, Without further ado, please enjoy this very wide-ranging, interesting, and fun conversation with Tritium's Three Musketeers. Okay. Um, Thank you all for joining us for episode three of the 10X Total Health podcast hosted by me, Mark Redless, and Dr. Gabriel Eichler, PhD. And 
general hi. smart guy. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Gabriel just talked again. <laughs> Going to use that on every podcast. Okay. Um, so uh, today we have uh, the distinct privilege of getting to talk to the big three here at Tritium. So I just decided to call them. Um, so, uh, we have some, uh, really interesting conversation today talking about making digital health products really, uh, resonate and, uh, and creating consumable digital health products, uh, for patients and providers and the ecosystem out there. Um, it is tough to do this stuff. And, um, these three people, uh, have worked together to make some products that really do work really well and they have great uptake um, amongst providers and patients and I have the privilege to get to work with them. Um, so uh, going around the room, um, why don't we do that? Uh, but I guess first, Gabriel, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, you know, Mark, I think that people don't always appreciate the user experience side of health tech and how much that's key to the success of health tech products both from uh, the user standpoint, from the patient standpoint, from the workflows, et cetera. And uh, I think this is an extremely exciting conversation because what I've seen of the work and the technology that Tritium has created is that there's just um, uh, real thoughtfulness that goes into how these products should work and integrate into workflows and uh, really serve the needs of the, the customers and, and, and the patients that touch them. So I think it's going to be really interesting to hear from uh, Deb, James, and Scott today and I'm just excited to be here. So thanks. Yeah. So um, we'll go around the room. So everybody recognizes the voices as, uh, as the podcast rolls on. So, um, you know, welcome our chief mobile architect here, uh, Scott Johnson. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. Uh, chief product officer, Deb Cipher. Thanks, Mark. Awesome. And uh, James Flaherty, chief technology officer at Tridium. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So we're going to get started. Um, should be a really fun podcast. Uh, hopefully this will be really enjoyable and um, representative of the insane discussions that we all get to have most of the time. So um, this is I, hopefully everybody out there gets to gets the idea that just like I really enjoy talking to Gabriel, uh, this, these five people on this podcast should be a pretty good conversation. So um, why don't we why don't we get started? Um uh, I guess I'll set the opening question here around, uh, and anybody can start, and then you guys can just all riff together. But I always start with the easiest question possible. But what do you think the biggest challenge is in bringing digital technology to healthcare? Who wants to take that out of the gate? Well, I think um, simplifying things that are very complex. Um, understanding the market, your users, and, and the people, and being able to translate that into something that they can use, that they want to use, that, that's the hardest challenge. And, and I don't know that it's specific to healthcare. Um, each industry has their own little things, um, you know, payer-provider mix, workflows in, in providers, clinicians. Um, understanding those workflows, I think, for me, is really the key to making the product successful and usable. I think a, a, another factor that has really started to play, especially now as digital technology is just permeating every facet of our life, is uh, trust. Trust, uh, you know, we have to earn the trust of the, the users and the patients. Uh, trust of, you know, your, your health is, is, is the most personal, uh, some of the most personal information you have. And so how we handle that and how we approach that from an empathy perspective uh, for the patient uh, and the user of the technology, it's really key. James, do you want to, oh, cause they're good. Gabriel, you oh, these are really good answers. Oh, so. I mean, yeah, sometimes they, it just works that way, right? Um, yeah, I mean, what I was thinking was a, was a little more basic uh, in the sense that um, I feel we have a hurdle in the healthcare industry that is, higher than you might see in another setting in that we've got um, a user base that at least from my perception is a little technology averse and they've really got to love the experience you don't have to come in and just have some baseline 
or, or meet some baseline of, of what it takes to enjoy using the application. They really have to love it. It has to be set apart from the tools that they're using. And um, uh, they have to be willing to adopt something new in their already super busy schedule. I mean, that's, that's the biggest challenge. I mean, I think that's a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. We've seen yeah, that multiple true. times, right? Where we've got people pushing back before they even have an opportunity to use it because they're being told that they've got to, um, they got to layer something new. They got to learn something new and they've got to work this into their day. So being able to bring something to the table that somebody immediately says, oh, wow, this isn't as hard as I thought it would be or this is really much more enjoyable mm. than the past experiences that I've had. I think that's that's one of the challenges that we have bringing this tech into that's true. the space. That's, that's absolutely so, true. So tell me what you guys think about this, but as you were speaking, I was kind of realizing it, healthcare seems to have incredibly fragmented workflows. And what I mean by that is that every care setting has different workflows different requirements, different paperwork, different interfaces between systems. You know, that's why people joke around that the common denominator of those interfaces is the fax machine because it's just the lowest common denominator. And that, you know, ultimately technology in most other segments is built around standards and built around the expectation of interactions, whereas healthcare has been based on the privacy and intimacy of the patient provider interaction. And as a result, you know, there's incredible just fragmentation and insulation between these systems in ways that is kind of very difficult to make tech work and tech scale across different environments. How much does that resonate with you? I'm just curious, or, or, or um, do you see it differently? It definitely resonates. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, th these are things, I mean, we spend hours, days, hours, going over and over and over these problems and how we get them right, how we talk through, just to your point, um, you know, how, how do we share information? How do we make it easy? How do we remove that click or this thing, make it look pretty enticing? We do, we agonize over how those things come together. I, I just wonder if um, some of the conversations we had yesterday in the week of wonder uh, uh, that is held here at Tridium on a quarterly basis, you guys had a design thinking, I think it was yesterday, um, design thinking conversation. And and and, and with respect to, to Gabriel's question about this, you have all these really bifurcated kind of frameworks of things that you have to connect together. And you just talked about, you know, agonizing over a click or something to that effect you know, do you put it into this design thinking kind of mode and, you know, what's the contribution to breaking through the barriers that Gabriel just talked about uh, and that you just, you know, talked about? Um, is that is that thought process really different? And obviously the whole, you know, one of the big points of the podcast is to really try to get people thinking in a different way about how they're going about solving problems, especially obviously in healthcare. And you guys work on problems in a different way. So um, does that, is that part of it? The design thinking part of this? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would say, I mean, one of the things that I do all the time and even my team members, like think about your users Put yourself as best you can into the shoes of your users and really, really try and understand very deeply and personally what their day is like, what their experience is like, what their challenges, their pains, their struggles. And if you can get to that point, then solving their problems becomes easier, mm. at least for me. Yeah, I mean, the thought that I had, just sort of digesting the question, is that I personally don't feel that when we've approached the problem in designing the software, that we've made a, um, a significant distinction between a healthcare user versus a user of any other piece of software. Um, at the end of the day, these are people that need to do a job that they, obviously there are certain healthcare specific requirements that go into how the data is served up or presented or how sessions are locked down, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not an overarching um, uh, driver of the, of the design. I, I 
for me at least, the main contributor is that we are dealing with people and I'm approaching it in in a fashion that's not dissimilar to how I would approach designing any other software. Um, to play off of that, James, I really think too, you know, how we design software for the enterprise environment or for the healthcare provider, just like you were saying, versus the consumer of that software or the patient or, you know, the end user. In other words, the non-technology user. <clears throat> I think one of the things, just the, the one of the problems facing mobile, say, and wearables for, for that for that matter, uh, is reducing the friction of getting up. In other words, we, we don't want to ask the user to have to do much. We want, we, ha we have to start thinking about how to collect and solve, you know, collect the information, solve these problems for them. And, uh, I think we're really seeing that particularly with Apple watch, um, where, you know, you can just strap this thing on your wrist and it, it starts collecting information and starts surfacing things to you right away how you breathe, how much exercise you're getting every day, how many times you know a day you stand up, you know, these kind of things reminding you, you know, I mean, the, the apps to remind you to drink water, uh, you know, every hour or whatever. Uh, I think that the, the, the less that the, the user has to do, uh, the, the better. And, and we just need to get smarter about that. So is that, is that about out of the box functionality or is that about total capability? Um, I think it's across the board. Yeah. In everything we do, we have to make it simple. It has to be easy. We have to remove decision makings from them, but give them the ability to do the things they need to do. But uh, I'm under the impression that the, the phase of discovery about how these tools will be used in workflows and what are the dimensions of capabilities that are sort of table stakes that have to be addressed in order to have anything even viable that that discovery process is not trivial either. And I, I'm not sure you guys have articulated enough of what you do there, but I, my sense is that you guys have done a lot in that kind of a space to learn about these, these domains where technology health technology is being used. No. Sure. I would say that's an ongoing process. There, there's a, a balance to to knowing when to ship, right? Um, so there's a process that says we have to understand the user. We have to design some things, come up with some ideas, build some things, and then we have to put it out there, right? You can't put it out too early because if it doesn't have enough stuff, if it doesn't have enough of the right things, the right components, doesn't solve enough problems, they'll hate it and they won't use it. But you can't wait till it's perfect either. Because if you wait till it's perfect, you'll never ship and you'll never get that feedback. And it's that feedback loop and allowing us to refine in a rapid manner that makes a big difference between whether or not a product is successful, I think. And Gabriel, I wanted to clarify the question um, just to make sure that we're guiding the conversation in the direction that you were hoping we would. Um, are you asking us to speak a little bit about the existing healthcare software landscape and how it informs our discovery process? No, I mean, I was thinking more about discovery um, overall, uh, but, uh, you know, I hadn't even thought about how the existing software <laughs> landscape could inform your discovery process. So, yeah, that's a that's a fascinating dimension to, to bring up. Tell, tell us about that, James. So um, I think there's a couple of things that we use as touchstones as far as existing software in the space. I think most of the software in the space is a bear to use, uh, comes with, I mean, if you speak with any healthcare professional that needs to use software as part of their job, generally weeks of training, crib sheets, um, uh, really arcane user experiences, and a build and deployment cycles that are monumental. Um, while I wouldn't say that it necessarily informs our thinking um, in the sense that my attitude is that it's kind of a no-brainer to not do that, <laughs> right? It's, it's not like we looked at that and said, oh man, we got to do something better than that. I didn't even think of that, right? Um, I think it's a no-brainer. And to Deb's point about when to ship, uh, one of the things that I think weighs strongly into our when to ship decision is that we can't wait eons to get new functionality out. Um, and while 
we're dealing with a user base that is historically does not want a lot of disruption in their workflow and the tools they use because they're used to having to go through training and used to expect, used to the expectation that they just need to follow n number of steps to do their job every single time. And if, if you disrupt that and you change that, you're going to, you know, upend their world, um, that we're compelled to bring new feature set to the software on a regular basis and do it in such a way to Scott's point about, um, making it easier and removing barriers so that change, so that the change to the features are not seen as disruptive. They're not seen as frustrating, um, that they're, they're a welcome change, um, to the stuff that they use in our software every day. Yeah. yeah. Can, can I ask a question for you? Cause, cause I think that you guys have also, it's crossed. your podcast. You can, you can <laughs> ask a question, you can do it. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Um, but my question for you is, um, you know, you guys have gone now from an initial user base who was sort of intimately involved in the feedback of the early versions and helped design and sort of create the specification for various features to now a more national rollout and footprint, which has providers that, you know, are kind of just customers that are buying a somewhat mature product. Um, and that transition shouldn't be under um, appreciated because that's when the rubber meets the road, it seems, to know whether you've made generalizably valuable software or specifically valuable software that, you know, the generalizable software works in many environments with other workflows, with other care environments. Um, and I'm curious whether you guys have a sense about whether, um, you know, uh, that what, what, how that transition has gone and whether it's opened your eyes to new functionality or whether you know, your initial sort of uh, test site and site where it was designed was a good representation of of, uh, of the needs. I guess I'm I'll looking answer. at you. It's I so see nice. that. I'm just <laughs> in a room and we all stare at each other. Well, <laughs> well I mean, so, so. My natural tendency in a conversation like this is to just jump into the fray and I'm, I don't know. You can jump. It's okay. I mean, anybody can jump. That You have a mic. Then we're all just going to be talking over each other. Uh, we'll, we'll figure we'll, it we'll out. We'll say, oh, stop. Hold <laughs> on. So, yeah. I mean, yes to, to all of the above, Gabriel. Um, we found that a lot of what we have done is very applicable to the, the new users that we're rolling out to. But yes, we also learn things every single time. And we talk about, you know, how those impact the rest of the product are they just an anomaly and just specific to that you know maybe a small new user group or is it something that really is a requirement we had never seen before that needs to be incorporated back into the, the product as a whole um, well i don't want to discount the process of the initial build and the care that we take uh, in defining those mm -hmm. in, that initial build and how that lends itself to that scalability into the growing customer base. So I, in a certain respect, I don't like the use of the word requirements here because it suggests that somebody has handed us something, uh, a mm -hmm. discrete mm -hmm. list of features and, and functionality that we have to build to, and we're just checking off boxes as we go along. And that's absolutely not what we do in our process. We take, you know, we take what you would normally call requirements and use them as, as guidelines, if you will, for the, uh, for the subsequent design discussions. And there's a lot of work put into evaluating whether or not something that has been uh, communicated is applicable in that form, or if there is an underlying more abstract truth that we actually need to build to that has broader applicability outside of the space of that initial, that initial, um, uh, request. That wasn't me. No, it wasn't me. <laughs> I don't know what that was. So, um, lost my train of thought. Sorry. Oh, so the point being that, uh, I don't think that we, there's always going to be the, the possibility that a particular set of features as it's 
exposed to a larger audience that we recognize gaps in the functionality mm -hmm. and we identify a new workflow or a new use case that we hadn't accounted for. Um, but in the cases that it has succeeded, it's not been accidental. It's succeeded because we've taken that time <laughs> to identify the broad applicability of a particular set of features in a more abstract sense than the initial ask. And I mean, there are, I mean, dozens of examples of that in the platform where what we've initially set out to build um, was mm -hmm. deconstructed on several levels before it actually made, before it actually made the final product. I think one of the things too, um, you, you know, when you're selling so software into the enterprise space um, or, 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 or just, you know, corporate software in general, and we all have varying degrees of like bespoke software kind of background, you know, obviously building custom solutions. Uh, but there is, there's always that pushback of, well, but we want it to do this. Uh, you know, like they're, they're never quite happy with just this. And so that's the, that's the dance. That's the constant balance of figuring that out. Whereas if, if you go to the consumer space, back to that thing where they're really relying on us to solve the problem, ultimately the uptake becomes, uh, did we do it right? Did we provide uh, uh, something in, uh, interesting enough, useful enough uh, with the least amount of friction to adopt into, you know, because we all have so many apps now and so forth on our devices. And, and when you start looking at what each one of those apps does well, it usually solves a problem, whether it's a social problem or a health problem or, you know, a financial problem or whatever that is in a way that balances that, um, th that, that, need to or that requirement to adopt uh and overcome that initial barrier you know that we launched the app for the first time does it you know is it interesting does it look good uh is the onboarding process too complicated versus you know uh like is it does it do enough things uh, so these are the, the the things i feel that are so different whereas in the enterprise space you know a lot of times they have such specific requirements it becomes it becomes a uh, a real dance to to build a product that meets all of those needs. Yeah, but there's a lot of, you know, I ask why a lot yeah. uh, mm -hmm. to the point I think sometimes people make fun of me and it's annoying. Um, but I, I'm not kidding. There are a number That's of... That's the reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, people come to us all the time mm -hmm. with, you know, a, a, will you build this report? Okay, why? What are you going to do with it? Who's going to see it? What problem are you trying to solve? Right? And it sometimes oftentimes it turns out the it's a completely different problem. The report doesn't solve the problem. Right? There's a complete different thing. Um a case review is a really good example mm -hmm. of that, right? Um that was a that started as a request for a couple of reports. Um so that they could look at and identify patients who had certain criteria and then use that to facilitate a process where they review what's going on with that patient, uh, allow a provider, you know, providers to interact and get feedback. And when I understood the problem and I said, you know, what if we do this instead? Mm -hmm. You know, why mm -hmm. don't we facilitate that workflow for you by not giving you a report that you can print and then you got to go off and do something? Aren't you just going to come back to our software and use a bunch of the other stuff that's in here anyway? And how about we do that? And then we started talking, developing, you know, bullets and requirements, if you will, to build a user interface. And then we go back to them and say, does this help? Right. And then they go, oh, yeah, we didn't never thought of that. Right. So there's, there's a lot of that that happens in what we do. And that's how the product evolves. And that's how you get to the crux of, of really solving problems and that makes people want to use the software. Do you think, um, you know, as you, you guys talk about design and, 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 and iterating and things like that, but, and, and you're, you know, you do ask that question why a lot I'm, I'm present at it. It's, it's very fun <laughs> for those of you out there. Sometimes it's not very fun, but it is, it can be fun. Um, but it tends to spark, um, 
you know, uh, a spinoff of the story you're telling. And, and I'm wondering if from each of your perspectives, if you guys could talk about the use of storytelling, both user stories and the construct of, of development, engineering, things like that, but also storytelling and how you build products, because it feels like we, we craft a story that we're going to go down and we're going to build something to match to that, what that story says we need to do. And then, and then you go, oh, you know, oh, there's this adjacent, you know, you know, to take the story metaphor really far, you know, oh, there's a set of actors over here that that we also need to build a backstory on and and, and do that. And so, how does how does storytelling work from a uh, a product design and engineering and architecture standpoint? And 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 how does it make a big difference in? Because I know I think it does with you guys. It makes a big difference in in building great products the story who wants to take oh, what james i see you looking at me out of the corner of my eye <laughs> <laughs> that's my cue <laughs> you're the story man james oh man <laughs> the story well, man. we we do <laughs> weave stories right? story man. <laughs> to talk to talk through how people are going to use the, the, the software or what the problem is you know I, again, I go back to, I always try and put myself in that particular user's shoes. Mm-hmm. And I say, if I'm doing X, what's going to happen when I do Y? Or when I look at this screen or I hear this thing, you know, go off or, you know, any of the things that we're, we're working towards. Um, and we sort of, we do craft a story around how they're going to use it, what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish. You know, we'll talk about, you'll hear me say things like, okay, if I'm a patient with cancer, what's going through my head? what's going to bother me about this software thing I'm asking them to do? Or if I'm a provider and I've got 12 patients out in my office, and then we just sort of weave these stories around each different way that we envision they're going to use the software and try and, I don't know, get in front of where the gaps are, where the holes are, where the pitfalls are, and remove them. I mean, you talk about, though, like inhabiting that persona and trying to feel like that, but, you know, um, to borrow um, Gabriel's favorite word, candidly, you got you guys have all either not just in your personal lives, but also you know have have spent time out in the field with actual patients. I mean, providers are are the predominant customer user of what we have today. That's evolving and changing, but you you spend time with patients. You you kind of see them using the products, and, and you can see kind of the pitfalls, and you know, down to mobility, down to um, the desktop, things like that. So, um, that really seems to inform a lot of what you guys think about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in the world of product design, this is sort of a no brainer, right? (laughs) But this is one of these things when you explain it to people that aren't doing this kind of stuff every day or it, it tends to be surprising that, it's really, really, really important to take yourself out of your own personal experience shoes mm. um, because nine times out of 10, your experience, your desires, what works for you in a software experience maybe might apply 25% of the time, right? There is a broad array of experiences and it's our job to understand that array and how it manifests with our user population. Mm-hmm. Um, my first experience in seeing this, it was bizarre. So I did uh, 15 years ago now, uh, touchscreen interactives at visitor centers. And this is this was sort of my um, first firsthand experience in seeing how people inter- interfaced with technology. Uh, at the time, 15, 16, 17 years ago, touchscreens were still pretty rare. I mean, we take them for granted today, but, um, you know, I mean, seriously, touchscreen ATMs were rare, right? right? You yeah, were still right. using the buttons on yeah. the side of the screen with the little arrows. Um, and yet this was a point in time where a lot of people had personal computers in their home at the time, right? And it was, I was dumbfounded by the fact that general people, you know, regular old people would come and uh, interact with these touchscreen interactives. And it's like they had never used a computer before in their life, right? They're pressing with thumbs. (laughs) That was the craziest thing that I never could have imagined because we're building 
we're thinking that the screen is just in the pointer on the screen is an extension of your index finger on your mouse, right? So all the developers and the designers would touch with their index fingers, but 50% at least of people yeah. that were visiting were touching with their thumbs. And, and it informed the, the, hmm. um, it informed the UI because all of a sudden you needed a button that was at least 50% bigger than maybe you were designing. Wow. Right. <laughs> right. Wow. Because, because of that hit state. And Nuts. that was, and I, I always like to go back to that. And you're still, you're still to this day surprised, right? Mm. Um, I think some of the experiences we had in, in rolling out uh, the iPad application, there were absolutely things where we all collectively said, man, I, I couldn't have imagined that. And so we're, we're constantly, even, you know, we're a little long in the tooth now. We've been doing this for a while, but I think we're still constantly adding to that cache like, like of wine, experience. Just aging. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> constantly adding to that cache of experiences to help inform yeah. every future decision that we make. Do, do, do you think, I mean, obviously, James, if you went back to go design a touchscreen system now, well, number one, it's a different user base. People probably get the index finger now. But in general, do you find that these are lessons that get reused and that you're kind of a smarter, let's say, a wiser developer and a wiser architect um, because you experienced these? Oh, absolutely. That said, we're dealing with a space that is constantly evolving and a user base that is getting um, more and more and more sophisticated. Um, I mean, I, I think it's, I think everybody here would agree that how our generation deals with technology when we're in our eighties is a lot different than our parents' generation deal with technology today. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, uh, you, you can, you know, put a 30 year gap, you know, put a 30 year time span and envision how people will be using technology. And I think the, the, it's it's not a, a, a huge leap to say, well, of course, people are going to be more sophisticated, but that applies year over year. Right. So, you know, you may see a very, very, very small incremental change over the course of a year. But, um, you know, it's going to be a hell of a lot more obvious in five years and 10 years. And I mean, Scott, I'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on this. If we went back in time and talked about. 2007 versus 2008. I think everybody knows what happened between those two, between January of 2007 and January 2008, roughly. Um, you know, there, there was a marked difference between what you could expect the general population to how they would experience technology just in like one year or there. And I think that's constantly the case and we have to reevaluate. Yeah. I mean, that, that, transition was so huge. I mean, we think about it from just a design thinking experience and the exercise, you know, of those engineers and designers and so forth at Apple at the time and, and the executives, you know, they've spoken about this since then about sitting in a room and basically saying how bad the state of the phone was in, in that industry. Like basically all this stuff was crap. And what are we going to do differently? And, you know, to come and completely rethink that, uh, obviously, you know, it has, has transformed, um, personal technology, uh, you know, forever at this point. Um, and, and there might not be, I mean, the smartphone is such a personal thing and we're, we all carry them and so forth. I was going to play off also on what you were saying back to the, um, there are certain constructs outside of just technology that exist, i.e. when we were talking about the, the iPad app, like the calendar right? And how people use a calendar, right? And, and understanding. So there's the technological implementation of the calendar, but then it's just all these things that they're the, the cognitive kind of um, relationship in the way that somebody thinks about their calendar. You know, some people use their calendar, like we make assumptions about, oh, well, everybody uses a calendar, anybody that's busy, like that's a professional and so forth. And it turns out that Yes, generally people do use calendars, but a lot of times they use them more like lists uh, where they have things, you know, grouped by date and they might have an appointment here. And so when we're asking them to use technology to transition from their current user behaviors around those actions, around those, uh, the, you know, that kind of user story, um, a lot of times it's a, it's a big it's a, it's a big ask, you know, and it's, it's hard to get them over the hump. And I was just really surprised to see how much, you know, we, we ended up, uh, uh, changing how, you know, we handle the calendar and the app, but, uh, 
I was really surprised at, at, at just how different and how difficult that was going to be for our mm. users yeah. to overcome. Yeah. I mean, until you see it in their hands, you just don't, don't exactly. get it. Right. It's, it's even you guys, you just, you're like, wow, that's, as James said, I'm still surprised, you know, mm-hmm. all the time. Um, if I don't, I, you know, we, we have, um, we're kind of in the last third of things, uh, the, uh, the time we have. So I, I want to hit a couple things that are more about interpersonal kind of how you guys work together. Cause I, I think, I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure, um, digital health investors and, uh, board members and entrepreneurs are, are listening to this. They, I would hope. And, um, you know, just get a sense of how you, how you all work together. So, um, why don't we start just from left to right? It'd be easier that way, I think. Um, so, so what's it been like to work with one another in your various roles and building these products? What's the toughest part of working with each other? Uh, well, I guess and the best part too. So, yeah, I mean, of course. Um, I think part of being remote sometimes, like we're not all in the same room together. I think sometimes we do our best thinking when we're we're together and uh, we can kind of, you know, I mean, what do they say? 93% of all communication is nonverbal. I think being able to see some of that and, and you know, get that feedback real time is is great. So uh, I, I think that's a, that's a challenge uh, from from just a daily basis. Uh, but one of the great things about working with Deb and James, from my perspective, is that they have such a commitment and passion for for what they do, and and for the product and the user and the company, and they're so invested uh, as as you know the the people they are that you know I gravitate to to that, and it's it's not only is it inspirational, but it really feeds into the the iterative process that we do together you know on working on product um so uh, it's 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 a joy to work with them but it's also really uh, allowed us to um to we trust one another you know we trust one another Mm -hmm. we allow each other uh the space to express our opinions and i think to you know disagree and 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 kind of go back and forth and and that that brings about some really neat results i think Awesome. Yeah. That's great. Deb? You know, I, I don't know that there's, I, I could say a lot different than what Scott said. I mean, I can tell you that across this team, like for me, this is absolutely the best team I've ever worked with, mm-hmm. hands down. Um, and there's just a tremendous, from my perspective out to these guys, a tremendous amount of respect and appreciation. Um, I trust them implicitly. You know, I think an example, we were doing a presentation for the board and you were coming to me, I don't know how many times, where's Scott, where's Scott, where's Scott? (laughs) He's got it, right? And he came to me later and he said, thank you for not bugging me. You know, you knew I was going to be there and you knew I would have it. And yeah, and we had that level of trust. I have the the same thing for James. It's just... Mm -hmm. You know they're going to be there. You know they're going to make their commitment. And you know they're going to do the right thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. James? Uh, uh, I think the hardest thing uh, is that we don't get to spend as much time doing this stuff as we as we used to when we were in the throes. And, you know, if we didn't do it, nobody did it. Right. And they have teams um, and people are doing stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Deb and I have talked on a number, number of occasions about how um, we're, we have to, we actually have to schedule time to make sure that we're having uh, one-on-one discussions around some of the, some of the harder problems. Um, but and we, we talked a little bit about this last night. Um, I think one of the great things, and it, and it took talking through it to really realize it is that nine times out of 10, our decisions are made via consensus. We're not bulldozing each other. Um, we're not voting one another out, right? We're, we're in it. And if it takes five minutes, if it takes five days, we're going to keep going at it and going at it and going at it until 
until we reach consensus. Um, I, there's definitely been times that I think it's been a little challenged and, you know, maybe we may reluctantly relinquish the position. Mm. Um, I think those are rare. On the whole, we get to something that we're all that we all passionately agree on mm -hmm. and, and believe is, is, is the right thing. And, you know, the other thing, just to, just to extend on that, I've worked in teams before where I felt frustrated that nobody else on the team is, is getting to the place that I'm getting to. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. And you know, that at, at points in time, the team just sort of throws up their hand and says, all right, yeah, whatever. If I guess we'll do it that way, right? And I never have that problem here. I don't think we, we ever, um, I don't think we ever uh, go into a design discussion and worry that somebody's trailing behind or that it's not clicking or anything like that. We're there on the same page. We're we're constantly riffing, we're building on what each other says, and we're all truly contributing equally. Um, and I think that that's fantastic. That's a hard thing to come by. Yeah, mm -hmm. for it's sure. It's unique, for sure. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, Gabriel, did you want to ask something? No, I mean, th those have been great questions so far. I think that, you know, the interpersonal team at, team dynamics are, are so key because it's a very, very... Um, you know, it's a very, very um, intimate and uh, interactive process that each of you go through when working together and, um, you know, making sure that the chemistry and uh, mutual respect is there is, is tremendous. And it's clearly shown that you guys have have invested in that and, and have great results because of that. You, you know, it, it strikes me and I feel like we'll make the podcast go longer because this question and the answers will be really interesting to get. And then we have another one more question after that. But. If you had to, and this again is for for folks listening to this that are just getting started, you know, about to build their first thing, or they're they're trying to stand up an investment and and do and do something that would impact healthcare, um, this very difficult, challenging market. Um, if if you were to start from scratch and you had to think backwards to how would you design a team that you'd have a chance to be able to to have this happen, where the three of you all work together. I mean, it's somewhat serendipitous. It's kind of how things work sometimes, but could you, is there anything you could think of that you'd say, wow, if you do this, you have a chance with your team to get to where you are right now. Man, I really think we got a lightning in a bottle thing here. Yeah. Right. And great answer, James. Yeah. <laughs> that in podcast Sorry. Thank you, audience. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a lot of luck. I mean, there's a lot of hard work, um, but there's a lot of luck. Hmm. I, I, I was just going to say, I often ask myself the question, if I, like, if I was just independently wealthy, you know, if I, if, if, in other words, if I didn't have to be doing this, what would I be doing? And the truth is, I would be doing this. Oh, yeah. Like, mm -hmm. this is what, so I would look for people that, you know, in that team that are really this love this process, love the the process of creation, love the the process of crafting something, uh, and love um, the experience of seeing people find joy or benefit or value or whatever that is in what you've created. I, I think that you know, for me, that is really what feeds it. And, and if you find individuals that thrive on that, they're going to do what it takes. They're going to learn what they need to learn. They're going to 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 you know develop the skills and 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 you know push it over the finish line. I think. Yeah, you know, I've woven questions into into interviews on that topic. Right? What's your pet project? What are you doing on the weekends and at nights? Right? What can you not put down? Right. Cause Bingo. the last, the last thing I want, like, so if, if there is a template for building a team and not that this is the, the one thing, but it's definitely a contributor. The last thing that you want is somebody that's just punching in and punching out. Right. 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 Yep. Um, that has picked this career because they heard that they could make money. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah, that, I hate that. That, <laughs> <I do. laughs> that, that they've chosen this life because they didn't have a choice, right? They were going to do this or they were going to be miserable doing something else. 
And I feel that way. Like if I, you know, I don't think that I could just go and pick some other career out of a career book and come home and think about that all day. So somehow you have to get to a point where, and again, this is for folks, I think building teams, it sounds like from your, from all of your perspectives it that, you know, it's, they just have to have it. I mean, and, and it is this passion and I think it's overstated. So, oh, this person works 80 hours a week at X job. It's actually probably, it sounds like it's more interesting if they work 60 hours at that job and then their side hobby is doing stuff that reinforces their main job, right? I mean, that that's a better sign if you're building a team and hiring and um, recruiting and things like that. Sounds That sounds like what you guys are talking about. Yeah. I mean, zeroing in on, on, on people that have that natural inclination to want to learn, mm-hmm. uh, and, and be better at something, um, you know, and, and are always up to the challenge, I think, you know, is, is so key. I'm sorry, Deb, did I interrupt you? You're going to say something. Why would the today be any different? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, just to play off what you guys were talking about, I, um, I weave similar types of questions into my interviews You don't always get it right. You really don't. Um, But I listen for things. I listen for sort of my cues. You know, when I hear people talk about, you know, why they do what they do. Right. And you hear that passion sort to start to come out. Um, I listen for things like, but I want to know why for them to say that to me. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. When when I know that they're going to dig into the why, because I just think it's fundamentally critical. You, you can't do this job well, I believe, um, if you don't get to the why. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. I, I, I listen for sort of my cues, my my tells that resonate with me. Um, how, how, how long does it take to figure out you made a, made a mistake on the hiring before you kind of really confirm that? It must be pretty quick, but that it takes longer to confirm it and to figure you that know, out. I feel I feel in retrospect – it's always like an hour. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? That's true. Um, but <laughs> it could take weeks for you to realize that 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 off feeling in an hour was telling. Um, though you know, in fairness, I've had an off feeling in an hour before, and it's been nothing, right? right? Yeah, um, it was just indigestion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, let's finish up with, uh, the question we try to ask all the guests, all the guests we've had, we've had four guests, <laughs> over two podcasts, all, all the guests, of them. all of them. And one of the guests was your co-host. Oh, right. <laughs> we didn't ask this question, did we? No, we'll, we'll go back and do it. Um, but, uh, and again, we, well, we'll start reverse order, starting with James here, uh, right to left, um, which is what is your one bold prediction that you would make for five years down the line in healthcare, technology related, I would assume, that will look back and say, I cannot believe we did it that way. Then. Oh, man. I feel like this is tough, right? In, in the sense that... That's the whole point of the question. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all right. Fair we can, enough. We can, we can take a commercial break and go to Peloton. Because <laughs> every podcast will reference Gabriel's Peloton. Sponsored by Peloton. Actually, not sponsored by Peloton. Hopefully, we won't go and get in trouble for that. But love love my Peloton, Gabriel. You, lo- you, love your, you have a Peloton too? I, I have a Peloton too. Oh, my too. God. Oh, my oh, God. That's great. Oh my yeah. God. It's like Peloton God. groupies. We, we, we got to get usernames, Gabriel, later. Definitely. I'll follow you. <laughs> I, I have one for Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, under, under under the periscope you, you can find me cool, cool moss cool moss cool moss all right i gotta right. write it down I'll find oh my you. god it's actually under the data scope but i i want to tell him it's, i like calling it under the periscope because it sounds exactly like it should be all right you got that break. come on james <laughs> or you can punt it and think about it yeah i might i think i think part of the problem is that we all collectively talk about all this stuff. So I don't feel like I personally own a prediction. <laughs> could, could we reframe the question to, of course we can. Okay. You guys <laughs> well, love to like riff, what so. will be vastly different, I think in five years. I mean, sure. And 
I, I, I've got one thing, but we can't. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Is that uh, I think what's happening in silicon right now, we're seeing it. I mean, these AirPods that you have in your ears, uh, the, the technology you have on your wrist, uh, that is only going to get much more sophisticated. And there are going to be things that we, uh, are, we take for granted. Uh, now, you know, we've got the Apple Watch has obviously I talk a lot about the Apple Watch because it's really an amazing piece of personal tech. Uh, and I think personal tech in general, specialized devices and things that collect data about us and improve our lives like that fall detection, like being able to detect blood pressure, like being able to detect glucose levels down the road. I mean, the things that heart arrhythmia, all those kind of things, you know, we're, we're going to continue to improve in that, that regard. And I think it's going to be, when we look back on it, um, you know, we'll wonder how we certainly lived without that kind of stuff. Hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, you stole my answer. That's oh, what I was going to say. Sorry. But so I'm, I'm, so I'm going to say, I'm going to be really surprised that we didn't deliver assessments on a Peloton. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Way to get all the messaging in in one statement. I tend to use my thumbs on my flat screen on my Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in that 50% group that needs the bigger button thing. Yeah. That's right. And, Anything else, James? I mean, I think that we're already going down this path. I mean, deeper patient engagement and 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 providing easier access to to your providers. I mean, that's that's going to become the name of the game for everybody, right? Um, uh, the the barrier right now is is really communication and, yeah. and getting getting the patient population to realize that these things are available. But I mean, hell, if I don't have to go drive to my doctor every time I need to see them in five years, that's going to be killer. Yeah. And I mean, we're starting that. There you go. Just ride your Peloton. (laughs) See them Um, on the Peloton. Uh, right. They'll have access to all uh, kinds of data that is already being tracked and monitored and so forth. Exactly. I mean, I think that there, there's going to be so much value, and 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 that comes down to the the other things. Eventually, we have to get the the hard problems we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast solved. Right. As far as you know, you were talking, Gabriel. I think, and I'm going to paraphrase here about just the silos, uh, and and so once we kind of once there are there's there's some way to federate this data in a way that people trust, uh, that's privacy focused, uh, and you know this is a big. A responsibility for technology companies. But I think once we overcome this hurdle, uh, it's just going to open up the floodgates to opportunities mm-hmm. and, and quality of life improvements uh, in healthcare. Because right now, uh, it is very opaque. People don't understand the process. They don't trust it. They don't understand why they have to get, you know, I don't have to get into the complaints of every time somebody goes sees a doctor, but it's like, why do I have to do all this stuff over and over again? Right. It seems like you should have figured this out by now. And- mm-hmm. I think a huge hurdle is going to be trying to figure out a way of putting the data in the patient's hands that is easy to use. Right. Right. Um, consume my da- they right. Yeah. Consume that data. I mean, my my primary use is Athena Health for their EMR mm-hmm. and for the patient portal, mm-hmm. and the amount of data that I can get out of there um, is. So much, I mean, there's so much more data. It's it's insane what I can get out of there versus what you could have done five, 10 years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. But it's still clunky. Right. Yeah. Um, it's not it's not user-friendly. It's not particularly obvious. It's I may be able to get all of my labs, every single detail on my labs, but I have no idea what I'm looking at. Right. 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 Yeah. And it's it's taking a lot of that stuff. It doesn't decode well right now. It doesn't. No. Yeah. It, yeah. it doesn't. There's no sense. I I mean, I'm in technology, right? I have no sense of how I can take that data out or initiate a right. sharing of that data or any of that kind of stuff. And if that is difficult for me to figure out, then it's totally inaccessible to, to most of the rest of the public. And... To realize the vision of patients truly owning their data and being the broker, being their own broker for their data, um, we've got t- 
tons of work to do as uh, as as healthcare software providers to to bridge all of those gaps. Um, and it's going to be an iterative process, right? I mean, it's not dissimilar to. I mean, if we go back to the iPhone, right? It's not dissimilar to the limited feature set when you're bringing something to market that nobody's seen before right. and nobody's used before, right? Right, um, and getting them to adopt it and then building on that trust and building on that adoption. I mean, if you took the iPhone 10, hopped in a time machine and handed it to people 10 years ago, there's no way in hell it would have gotten the adoption that it got, right? right? Because it's far too feature rich. It's building on those base expectations. Yeah. So I think that we've got the same, mm -hmm. we've got the same challenge ahead of us. Um, just as healthcare technologists as a whole, yeah. And being able to take something to market, simple, getting people to embrace that and then and then building on it. You know, I'd be curious, Gabriel's take on this too, because uh, our, our resident data superstar, Gabriel Eichler, um, but you guys also have to make data, you have to be able to make it work, right? It's got to be consumed by patients. But, you know, Gabriel, we, we talked on our introductory podcast about the idea of, um, you know, AI and things like that. But but being able to leverage data to make decisions, we, we, we think about that from a provider standpoint, but but really a patient standpoint, you know, that's what James you're talking about is can I leverage and can I consume data and leverage it and then make better decisions? D does that kind of lead to maybe transformational outcomes? I mean, if you if you can do something with that right now, you can't do anything with it because you don't know what you're looking at. Right. right? But mm -hmm. if that changed, what would that do? Gabriel, do you have yeah. any, any? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, thoughts on absolutely. That? I mean, you know, um, I'm reminded of a, a patient blogger that I was recently reading about. And, you know, in 2014, she had a big hit with this um, visualization she made. Her name is Sarah Rigare, and uh, she's a Swedish uh, Parkinson's patient. And she made this ridiculous graphic that showed um, 8,765 little balls stacked up next to each other. And one, one ball at the top was red. And she said, to manage my Parkinson's disease, I spend one hour with my neurologist and 7,000, uh, sorry, 8,765 hours in self-care. And it's just absurd to think that we would think that measuring and managing healthcare can happen in such a minority of the time, right? And so I think that we're transitioning into this much more continuous communication mechanism, which is bolstered by AI. And it's bolstered by virtual check-ins and telehealth and, mm -hmm. you know, other forms of communication that patients and clinicians are happy to adopt. And that, you know, we transition the role of the physician from that of what I think of as currently being sort of drone pilots to air traffic controllers, right? And that they're sitting there directing, bring in the people that need to be seen immediately and managing from afar the people that are doing just fine. Um, and so, you know, these are the kind of changes that I think we're going to, we're, we're apt to see in the coming, in the coming years. Um, and to be honest, the fundamental aspect of this, that's so important to make this happen. It's the least sexy thing out there, but it's just missing is data standards because we don't even have a standard way of describing a patient or describing a disease. Um, we barely even have ways that EMRs can talk to each other. And so the more we have data standards that fulfill these reasonable description languages of various complex fields and topics, the sooner we can actually address these challenges and start to make them real. Gabriel, I have a follow-up question to that. Do you think the market will, will work that out? Or do you think that there needs to be some kind of, whether it's legislation or something else that, that creates an environment where yeah. not, that's mandatory to happen? Yeah. You know, uh, so I think, you know, the forces that I think will make this happen are both on two levels. There's an enablement layer, which is, you know, the digital health, AI, sensing, telehealth, communications layer that has to exist. And there's also an economic layer, which very simply put, if we really find a way to scale the adoption of value-based medicine, this will work, right? Because mm -hmm. all of a sudden now my clinician's time is much more at his or her will and their interest in serving patients to retain them in their cohort are all aspects that that is going to drive that type of adoption. 
Um, right now, value-based medicine has been growing by leaps and bounds, but from an incredibly small basis. So, you know, 50% bigger this year than last year is still from half a percent to 1% of total hair care, <laughs> right? So it's tiny, but I think that it, it, we're not going to get this genie back in the bottle and value-based healthcare is the only way to do it. And that's going to become the platform that's going to enable these types of innovations. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. great. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I think we'll stop it there. Um, this was a lot of fun, guys. I definitely I liked it. I, yeah. We should do it again. This is great. Yeah. Like maybe episode four. <laughs> oh, but, oh, you're talking about a sequel, Gabriel. Yeah. You know, listen, we should keep the conversation going. I could see these guys have been great guests. We, we, we have a lot to talk through, you know? Yeah. No, there, there is a lot more uh, meat on the bone, I, I would say. So it's, um, it was, it was a lot of fun. Thank you all for, for coming on and uh, look forward to hearing what everybody thinks about this as it goes out into the ether. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right. All right. Over and out. Thanks, Mark, for hosting this. Oh, shit. I'm still recording. Oh, no. What's going to happen? We're into the twilight zone. Oh, my God. Help me. Thanks again to everyone who just sat through episode three of the 10X Total Health podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to drop us a line via our website, 10xtotalpodcast.com, or email either of us at gabriel at 10xtotalpodcast.com or mark at 10xtotalpodcast.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. Without our listeners, we're just two guys having a really interesting conversation, which is kind of how this whole thing got started anyway. As always, the show notes will be up on our website under episode three. Please stay tuned for upcoming guests across the healthcare delivery product and investing spectrum. This should be a really great ride. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode and we hope that you continue to join us.